Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. The story of the Roman general Cincinnatus is timeless. It resonated with ancient republics, and it has also been a powerful influence on modern republics and popular ideas of civic virtue. As the legend goes, Cincinnatus was chosen to lead his people in time of war. When the war ended 16 days later, instead of holding on to power, he willingly laid it aside and returned to life as a farmer. Years later, when trouble again threatened his community, his countrymen found him plowing his fields. Apprised of the situation, he reluctantly accepted the supreme power that was thrust on him and led his countrymen once more. When the crisis was over, he again relinquished power and returned home. For thousands of years, Cincinnatus has been celebrated as the quintessential citizen-soldier, a man who could expertly wield power without being corrupted by it because leadership was nothing more to him than civic duty. This theme of Cincinnatus, the military man who never grasps for power but reluctantly accepts it, is common in American history. George Washington, America's first president, demonstrated this type of civic virtue when he returned to his farm after the American Revolution and had to be called upon by his countrymen to return and help build the government of the new nation. When it came time to elect a leader for the new republic, he was unanimously elected by his peers. It was not an office that he appeared to grasp for, and in his humble acceptance, he forever charted a course for future generals in their pursuit of the presidency. In keeping with this trend of the reluctant leader with no personal ambition, most American generals with aspirations to higher office have often tried to maneuver behind the scenes so that they don't appear to seek the office, but rather are drafted for the job by others. Douglas MacArthur was no different. He joined the ranks of many of his fellow generals, past and present, in a covert pursuit of this office. He would be a potential candidate in 1944, 1948, and 1952, but would never officially declare himself a candidate. This podcast will address MacArthur's 1944 presidential ambitions. From boyhood, MacArthur had been interested in the presidency. His mother had exhorted him to follow the example of George Washington, and what was implied in this example was that he should become a general and a president. He believed he had a great destiny, and with an eye on the White House, his career began to take shape. By 1929, MacArthur, a very young general, was already considered someone presidential kingmaker should watch. He was also identified by Walter Millis as a military politician. Dwight D. Eisenhower, who worked for the general for a period of time, wrote that he had known many senior officers who drew distinct lines between duty and personal politics. According to Eisenhower, though, MacArthur did not even see a line between the two. With ambitions of his own, Eisenhower was quick to identify MacArthur's interest in the White House. Throughout American history, famous generals have been courted by both political parties. An example of this occurred before the 1952 election, when both political parties sought to enlist General Eisenhower as their candidate. Unlike many of his fellow generals, however, Douglas MacArthur was not ambivalent when it came to political party. 
It was clear from the very beginning that he was after the Republican nomination. This wasn't just because Franklin Roosevelt dominated the Democratic ticket during many of the years MacArthur considered a run for office, it was also because MacArthur was ideologically opposed to many New Deal policies. MacArthur thought Roosevelt a very dangerous man, and Roosevelt returned these feelings. In the many years they worked together, Roosevelt would do his best to exploit MacArthur's military genius, while at the same time doing everything in his power to frustrate MacArthur politically. Despite Roosevelt's efforts, however, MacArthur would become a natural candidate by 1944. World War II raised MacArthur's public profile and turned him into a household name and an American hero. Engaged in the desperate but ultimately futile defense of the Philippines, MacArthur's colorful communiques from the doomed fortress of Corregidor fed the American public's need for a hero in the darkest days of the war. Later, as MacArthur led forces back through the Pacific to the Philippines, he rose to even greater popularity. As a result of this popularity, Roosevelt was very careful in dealing with MacArthur and took great pains to avoid sparring with him. Instead, the president praised MacArthur publicly and awarded him the Medal of Honor. By doing this, Roosevelt sought to neutralize the general by preventing an opposition movement from crystallizing around him. Evidence of the scope of the public's regard for MacArthur can be found in the number of babies named Douglas or MacArthur during these years. Parks, canals, streets, clubs, and bond drives were named after him. In Vermont, an eighth-grade class held a mock Republican convention, and MacArthur won the nomination in a landslide. The students then wrote to MacArthur asking him if he would accept the nomination. A student in Atlanta, asked by a teacher to name the most important American possession in the Far East, immediately responded General MacArthur. Even the New York Times weighed in, opining that there was glamour even to his name. Abroad, Pravda, the communist paper, celebrated him as a leader and the papers in London labeled him a new Valentino in looks and personality. MacArthur was even featured in a Captain America comic. The press loved him, the people loved him. The only thing standing between him and a successful White House run was the war, thousands of miles of ocean, and other Republican politicians. Despite the grassroots and media support for the general, the inner circle of the Republican Party remained hesitant. Wendell Wilkie, widely regarded as one of the front-runners for the 1944 Republican nomination, even went as far as to look for other jobs for MacArthur, namely that of principal military advisor to the president. Wilkie's efforts failed, but it is proof that even those in the Republican Party were trying to neutralize MacArthur. MacArthur remained deeply interested in the job, but was anxious to avoid potential embarrassment and anxious to avoid being seen as openly grasping for the reins of civil government. As a result, he was incredibly coy about a 1944 run for office. Having run the Japanese blockade of the Philippines, MacArthur would tell sources in Brisbane, Australia, that he had no political aspirations. He claimed he would rather be known as the liberator of the Philippines than ever be president of the United States. This was just talk, though. Years later, when he asked Eisenhower if Eisenhower was interested in becoming president, Eisenhower responded that he had no political aspirations, and MacArthur congratulated him, answering, that's the way to play it, Ike. Further proof that he remained interested was his strong support of Senator Arthur Vandenberg's fight against Secretary of War Henry Stimson. Stimson had forbidden active duty officers from campaigning or accepting any civilian political office. Vandenberg led the charge to reverse this policy, and a grateful MacArthur wrote him in 1943, There is much that I would like to say to you which circumstances prevent. 
In the meanwhile, I want you to know the absolute confidence I would feel in your experienced and wise mentorship. While on a trip to the United States in the summer of 1944, General Willoughby, one of MacArthur's trusted generals, investigated the MacArthur for President movement and met with Senator Vandenberg. On his return, he delivered a personal letter from the senator to MacArthur. In the letter, Vandenberg advised MacArthur that he was a long shot for the candidacy, but there was hope for him because as the war dragged on into another year, the American people would want to elect a new commander-in-chief rather than a new president. MacArthur, Vandenberg wrote, was a winner, and the Republicans needed to nominate a winner if they were going to dethrone Roosevelt. At the same time, however, he cautioned MacArthur to play it cool writing, I shall do the best I can to curb premature enthusiasts who might unwittingly in their zeal force your hand. One of the chief sources of your strength in this equation will continue to be your total aloofness from the movement. A challenge to this aloofness was presented to MacArthur in the form of the visit of Eleanor Roosevelt to the Pacific Theater in 1943. As always, her travels had a double intent one to raise morale, and two to be the eyes and ears of her husband far afield. Due to his involvement in the NADZAB drop, MacArthur never met with the First Lady when she arrived in Australia. Duty conveniently kept him from a smiling photo op with the wife of the man he might face in the coming election, and it was MacArthur's wife Jean who was left with the task of hosting the First Lady. During the visit, many of the general supporters in Australia were asked to remove their MacArthur for President buttons. Although MacArthur was clearly avoiding the First Lady, there was no need to further antagonize her because her goodwill was still important. Later during the visit, Jean hosted a luncheon for the First Lady. During the luncheon, an Australian woman blurted out, Isn't it grand? I hear General MacArthur is going to run for president. Mortified, Jean made no comment and was grateful that the First Lady diplomatically made no mention of the incident. MacArthur appeared to take no direct action to organize a political campaign for 1944. Instead, the organization of his political campaign was left to citizens in the United States. Following MacArthur's successful escape from the Philippines, Joseph Lieb wrote to MacArthur on May 28, 1942, informing him of the creation of a MacArthur for President Club. Lieb encouraged the general to stay focused on the war, while he and others around the country gathered support and kept the general popular. The largest chapter of the MacArthur for President Club sprang up in Chicago. The boss of this club was Joseph P. Savage. Savage became the main voice of the movement and was even able to circumvent wartime censorship and communicate directly with MacArthur via courier. Savage would identify pro-MacArthur officers before they were shipped off to the Pacific and would have them pass messages to MacArthur, advising the general of his campaign in the States. Few across the country considered the MacArthur for President movement a real threat, but a Gallup poll startled many when it was reported that MacArthur had a 57.3% favorability rating nationwide. That was nearly as great as the combined favorability ratings of Wendell Wilkie and Thomas Dewey, two Republicans regarded as frontrunners for the nomination. While the general's favorability ratings were higher than Wilkie's or Dewey's, that was no guarantee that he would triumph over them in state primaries. His credentials were based on the fact that he was leading part of America's war effort. There was no way he could come home to campaign. MacArthur was also unwilling to face the humiliation of a defeat in any primary. As a result, some of MacArthur's surrogates in the states, including Senator Vandenberg, decided to keep MacArthur off all the primary ballots. 
This strategy was based on the belief that the convention would result in deadlock between Dewey and Wilkie. To solve this anticipated crisis, Vandenberg would step forward and offer a brokered convention, which would allow the Republicans to move forward in 1944. With Dewey and Wilkie locked in a stalemate and no longer viable, Vandenberg would nominate MacArthur as the compromise candidate. Once acclaimed the nominee by the delegates at the convention, the general would then have the luxury of having this greatly desired nomination forced on him. He would then, like Cincinnatus, reluctantly accept the trust placed in him, set aside what he was doing, and answer the call to serve his nation. Placing all their hopes in the strategy of a brokered convention, MacArthur and his allies hoped for a quiet but powerful surge towards the convention. Soon, however, the movement became a victim of MacArthur's ever-burgeoning popularity at home. With no central, official MacArthur-backed MacArthur for President organization, splinter groups began popping up all over the country in support of the general. Lacking coordination and not aware of the brokered convention strategy, these groups started putting MacArthur's name on state primary ballots. These groups also began getting in each other's way. It was then that MacArthur's carefully constructed strategy began to unravel. He had not even declared himself a candidate, but the enthusiasm of his supporters was endangering his chances. Disaster lay ahead. As 1944 approached, Dewey began to pull ahead of Wilkie in the polls. This trend continued, and soon Senator Vandenberg acknowledged that with Dewey's momentum, there was no hope for a brokered convention. This would not be the most bruising part for MacArthur. His name was added to the Wisconsin primary ballot by zealous supporters. Wisconsin was considered his home state, since it was the home of his father, and MacArthur was bitterly humiliated when the primary resulted in 17 delegates for Dewey, four for another candidate, and three for MacArthur. More disaster was to follow. MacArthur had exchanged private correspondence with A.L. Miller, a member of the House of Representatives from Nebraska. These letters cast President Roosevelt in a negative light, and Miller, thinking they would help MacArthur's faltering chances, decided to publish them. This ignited a firestorm. The press, once very MacArthur-friendly, found the letters treasonous. Historians today consider MacArthur's letters a political misstep, but hardly treasonous. Whatever the view of them, they forced MacArthur to take action. Embarrassed by the leak, he declared he was not a candidate. As the story continued to gain traction in the news cycle, he was forced to issue yet another statement, stating, I request that no action be taken that would link my name in any way with the nomination. I do not covet it, nor would I accept it. This would end his 1944 presidential hopes. In his autobiography, MacArthur wrote of the whole behind-the-scenes campaign for 1944 as a very minor aside to his wartime service. He begins, about this time, I became aware that my name was being bandied about in the United States as a possible candidate for president on the Republican ticket. I at once stated that I had no political ambitions whatsoever and only hoped to see an Allied victory in the war before retiring. His choice of words is always deliberate, and by using the phrase bandied about, he sought to imply that the MacArthur for President movement was frivolous and far from his thoughts at the time. But this was hardly the case. In his autobiography, he also makes sure to emphasize how relieved Roosevelt was that he was not going to run. He relates a story from Prime Minister Curtin of Australia, who after a visit to the White House reported to MacArthur that Roosevelt was incredibly relieved he was not running for office in 1944. 
Curtin also told MacArthur that he believed that the president had probably been looking under his bed every night before he went to sleep, worried that he would find MacArthur there, waiting. Even though his name had been bandied about, MacArthur wanted his readers to know that the president had taken him seriously, even as an undeclared candidate. MacArthur's quest for 1944 could have damaged his relationship with Roosevelt. The president would be relatively forgiving, though. He was the more flexible of the two, and he knew he needed MacArthur. Now that MacArthur was no longer a threat, he called a meeting with him at Pearl Harbor to discuss the next stages of the war in the Pacific. The meeting was friendly, and MacArthur got his way when the president approved of his plan to return to liberate the Philippines. He would not become president of the United States, but he would get his wish to be known as the liberator of the Philippines. Despite MacArthur's light-hearted rejection of his own involvement in the 1944 cycle, he clearly had his sights set on the White House. As Daniel Arvelo points out in his thesis entitled, MacArthur Soldier Hero Candidate, MacArthur sought and secured the help of a powerful political mentor, cultivated relationships with powerful Republicans, allowed nationwide political organizations to form on his behalf, and never until April 22, 1944, discouraged or denied rumors that he sought the presidency. The best proof that MacArthur was serious about 1944 is the fact that the disappointment of that year did not deter him from further pursuit of the White House. In fact, he would be much more aggressive in his pursuit of the nomination for 1948. This behind-the-scenes attempt would also fail, but MacArthur would make yet another attempt in 1952. During this final attempt, however, MacArthur would be much more guarded, a distant admirer of the highest office in the land. As he had in 1944, he would never be an overt candidate. Instead, he would always be waiting in the wings, ready to be drafted to higher office. While his popularity put this within reach on several occasions, missteps and a lack of understanding of the political situation ultimately removed the office from his grasp. President Roosevelt once remarked, Douglas, I think you are our best general, but I believe you would be our worst politician. MacArthur's difficulties may have stemmed from the fact that as a military politician, he didn't see a difference between the two. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.